Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the last official week of Donald Trump's presidency, January 14th, 2021. And uh, I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And this week we are not going to be talking about the coup. We're your non-coup-related content. We're going to be talking about how residuals are going to work for HBO Max, which is a huge thing that we need to deal with that everyone should understand. We're going to be talking about why Tarantino wishes more people would write movies, which is interesting. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, sort of an indie feature setup showing up on NFL broadcasts. We're going to be talking about the way in which Sony is moving into drones, and it's super cool. And we've got all that and an Ask No Film School from the mononym Smith about crowdfunding this week on the No Film School podcast. So our first topic this week, how is HBO Max going to pay residuals? So this is a huge thing. If you've been missing the story the last couple of weeks because you've been paying attention to everything else in the news, attempted corruption in Georgia, an attempted coup in D.C., other things that are distracting, you might have missed the huge news in the film industry, which is that Warner Brothers and HBO are both owned by the same conglomerate, and the same conglomerate has decided that all the Warner Brothers movies for 21 are going to premiere on HBO Max instead of in theaters or simultaneous to theaters. So, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 came out Christmas Day in theaters and HBO Max. Um, and that's a huge change. It's the collapsing of the window. Steven Soderbergh started experimenting with this 20 years ago with Bubble. Um, there's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of drawbacks. It's an interesting thing. One of the billion things we need to talk about with this is residuals. Now, residuals might not seem like a big deal at first because when you first hear residuals, a lot of us think about like, well, Tom Cruise made $75 million in residuals from Mission Impossible 2. And so a lot of people hear about residuals and they think, well, you know, you made $10 million up front and now we're worried about whether or not you're going to get $5 million later. Like, who gives a fuck? But residuals <laughs> are not just about profit sharing for already millionaire people. Residuals also, for instance, on big union productions and all of these big Warner Brothers shows are union productions. Residuals are one of the ways in which many, even smaller film workers make their entire living. They're one of the ways in which the union pension and retirement benefits and health insurance funds are replenished from, from residual deals on larger productions. So there's a lot of implications for everyone who works on a film set, not just the big headline people who are making seven, eight, nine figure residual checks. It is something that really matters a lot for everyone who works in entertainment. For instance, if you're a writer, it's often very hard to get your residual money. They're, you know, the WGA is going to get involved. People are going to have to fight for it. But it is one of those places where people really do see back end on these larger productions and, and not having them come to you because, you know, it's hard to measure residuals in a online space. HBO Max has a recurring subscription fee so if Wonder Woman 84 just appears in your queue and you watch it, you're not paying extra for it. That's not accounted for. So HBO Max has finally announced, you know, and frankly, in yet another way in which this should have been handled better, all of this should have been announced at the same time it was announced they were making the move for Warner's movies to HBO Max. The fact that that was announced and none of the uh, people involved were told ahead of time and how the residuals were going to work out wasn't announced. It's just another sign of how sloppy this whole thing is. Is like, yeah. 
they could have handled it so much better if they'd already worked out the residuals deal and they talked to everybody who has a Warner Brothers movie first and then they announced it publicly. But they got it backwards. There's some good stuff here. There's some awkward stuff here. So, you know, one of the good things is by doing this, Warner's is accepting that there's going to be less revenue for these movies because, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are like, oh, well, it's available on streaming. Why would I pay to see it in a theater? And even if vaccine rollout is really quick and by August movie theaters are, are back in business, having it simultaneously in the movie theater and at home, a lot of people will choose for home. So they cut the bonus triggers in half. So previously, if you needed $100 million in earnings to trigger your bonus, now your bonus kicks in at $50 million in earnings. That seems reasonable. And I and more than anything else, I like that it's not a negotiation per movie. It's not one of those things of like, we're willing to sliding scale it. It is much more one of those things of, all right, here we go. We're going to deal with that. On top of that, there's a COVID-19 multiplier, which means that um, they're going to change that threshold even more while theaters are as closed as they are. And if theaters remained as close as they are, the threshold might be hit at even lower than 50%. So like, let's say in October, everything's back to normal and and the vaccine has been great and, and Trump is in jail and movie theaters are going <laughs> again, then we'll be at a 50% threshold. But in May, if all the theaters are still shut down because we're doing such a bad job of rolling out the vaccine, well then it's going to be an even lower threshold for bonuses using the COVID-19 multiplier, which I think is really great. However, the last bit is the bit that I think is really tricky, which is they've announced that HBO Max will pay Warner Brothers for the 31-day window on the movie on HBO Max. In theory, this is great. However, technically, Warner Brothers and HBO Max, while they are separate businesses facing the public, are both owned by AT&T. So they are really effectively the same business. There's going to be a negotiation between HBO Max and Warner Brothers on every one of these productions, but it's the same money. Because they're owned by the same company. So effectively, it's all the same in the end. That is not what we consider an ideal negotiating scenario. That is not what Adam Smith envisions for the functioning of a public market. Um, you know, and this shows up in lots of places. Kia and Hyundai are both owned by the same Chaibol in South Korea. And Inocean, the Hyundai ad agency, owned by the same Chaibol, which makes their negotiations very complicated. And, you know, this is there. This was like beautifully parodied on 30 Rock when 30 Rock was making all sorts of jokes about Cable Town buying NBC and how complicated it would be for Cable Town and NBC to negotiate against each other because once Cable Town owned NBC, there was no incentive. Like it was its own money it was negotiating with. This is the same situation. So hopefully... Warner Brothers will be able to get hefty fees from HBO Max because that will mean good residuals for the workers who made these projects. And that, and I'm going to say it yet again from the rafters, this matters not just for top-of-the-line workers. This, this isn't just about Chris Nolan getting a huge bonus. This is also about all of the hardworking people who had one line that they walked on and walk on with or who just set up light stands getting their retirement fund properly financed. That's how this is set up to work. So um, hopefully Warners will be able to get good fees out of HBO Max, but I, it's tricky because like, you know, let's say Warners has three bad months um, or HBO Max has three bad months. Warners owned by the same company 
So the head of Warner's and the head of HBO <laughs> Max are presumably in <laughs> regular meetings with the owner of AT&T. And then they're supposed to have a negotiation where Warner's is like, I need, I need $250 million out of you for the 31 month exclu- 31 day exclusive, even though the head of AT&T has already committed all those movies to HBO Max. So HBO Max knows they have it no matter what. Yeah. Where is the incentive for HBO Max to pay market rate? Where's the room for Legendary, who co-produced some of these projects with Warner's, to say, actually, H- Apple's going to give us $150 million. Can you give us $160? Like, that's how a market is supposed to work. Warner's, how is Warner's supposed to get anything? Right. The problem is having the production company be the distribution platform, basically, if you blow it up because it's much bigger than a production company. But like the studio being the distributor is, is ultimately a little problematic, right? Yes. We used to have laws about this. Right. And that's the reality that, um, well, we've been talking about it on this podcast as like chip by chip has come off of this thing. And now the wall has kind of crumbled. But, you know, Paramount decrees and like we've talked about the whys and the every little step of the way. You know, for a long time, I was banging the drum as we talked about these news stories on. Yep, this is it. Like it's going to change. It's over like the theatrical model. And now there's a part of me that thinks the deeper we get into this pandemic and the closer we seem to be sort of like just out of grasp to, you know, vaccinations and maybe return to some form of normalcy. I wonder how much people are going to be desperate to get back into theaters. And I wonder if we're going to just see a boom for whatever theater model still exists. And I wonder if things are going to shift back. I'm just... I don't know. One thing that seems clear is it's become very hard to predict what will happen. But I'm curious to see, I mean, as you mentioned, as all of this outlines, there there are plans for for if it goes back. But regardless of, of if people start cramming back into theaters safely, there's still something weird about studios owning the platform where people see things. And it there's something that just feels weird about that. Because if you create the content and you own the distribution platform, then it changes the marketplace and it changes the relationships between the artists and the audience. I wonder how that'll develop. I guess there's going to be kind of indie avenues. There's going to be direct to consumer avenues that will exist that will cut out the gatekeepers. But, you know, you're competing with someone sitting at home and turning on their every, any device they have and seeing the apps they know with the brands they recognize and going there to see a movie rather than, you know, if somebody creates IndieStream or whatever. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if IndieStream is an app sitting on my smart TV or my Apple TV or whatever, but there's also Disney, Warner's, Netflix, and Amazon. I mean, all the stuff I've heard of and all the the stars I know, you know, it's going to, there's, it's going to be tough. I'm not breaking news by saying this, but it's gonna be tough to break through if the content that's created by the studios is sitting there on the studio platforms. Yeah. It's going to be hard to bring attention to interesting projects. I mean, you know, the, the perk of this all sp- is supposed to be that by doing day and date, by releasing simultaneously theatrically and on home video, you have an easier marketing push. But it's getting harder and harder to bring attention to anything because of how saturated our market is. There's that so. too. I, I was just going to say, like, there's this um, a great example 
anecdotally for us, for our community, like, you know, we exist in the community as I'm sure most of our listeners do, where you want to see most of the big things that come out or the talked about things. But so Mank was the big movie that in our community, a lot of people were talking it up and it was hyped and it's Fincher and it's movies and it's all that. And, and it came out on Netflix and there was, you know, some anticipation and then not by any fault of the movie, but it's kind of done and, and over with because there's so much, right? There's so many new things to be released. There's so many things available all the time. The market is so saturated that it's really hard to have any staying power in the consciousness um, the way that there used to be. I mean, even in, in, it's not ancient history, but I guess to some people it will feel like it. But how long was Titanic in theaters for? Do you remember like a year? It was year? in theaters for a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, and the thing was for those who didn't live it or don't remember living it, it was kind of like this every, like you have to see it and everybody kept seeing it or going back. And it was like, everyone saw it in the theaters. It, I guess the the thing I might compare it to in recent history was something like Game of Thrones, where it was such a talked about and studied piece of culture that everyone in the community and in, in the, the virtual water coolers we gather around in Slack now or whatever was talking about. So you kind of had to stay up on it. I guess Mandalorian has had some of that in the wisdom of sort of doing a, a weekly rollout or maintaining that anticipation. But all of that said, it's very hard for a movie, for a one shot story like that to have staying power and pick up an audience. Like over the summer, we talked about Palm Springs. You know, Palm Springs was a big thing at Sundance, and then it had its streaming debut in a time when there wasn't a bunch of stuff available and stream, or it wasn't a bunch of releases and not a lot of things in theaters broke through. But already, is it like a part of the conversation anymore? It wasn't even that long ago. But I feel like we move very quickly because the market is so saturated. And um, I think that there are ways. So Minari is back, like we talked about it last week on the podcast, and Minari is back in the conversation again, which is one of the nice things about awards shows now. Maybe they will play a role in keeping relevance to projects that were valuable over the course of a year. But I think it's just things are so quickly done and gone. You know, We move on so fast. Well, that transitions us organically to our next topic, which is... Quentin Tarantino is on record as saying he wishes more people would focus on writing spec screenplays again, as opposed to just trying to get staffed on TV shows, which sort of segues into what you're talking about, which is that we're moving into a media landscape where it is easier to market something that is syndicated over a longer period of time. You know, like Game of Thrones, the marketing budget they could put in for that could build up to 12 weeks of, of playback. And as much as the Netflix model of I'm going to dump all the episodes at once works for Netflix, what that ends up doing is that means that shows have a smaller chance of entering the conversation, right? There's like the weekend it drops and then a bunch of people binge it. And then three weeks later, no one is mentioning it anymore. It's no longer a zeitgeisty. Mandalorian dropping weekly, Game of Thrones dropping weekly, the HBO weekly thing offers a bigger opportunity for people to be like, oh yeah, I just watched episode three last night and somebody else to be like, oh, I haven't seen that. Let me catch up. Let me contribute, let me be part of the conversation. What Tarantino was talking about is Tarantino was talking about how he wishes more people were writing feature screenplays, which are, you know, coherent pieces that have a beginning, middle and end 
And I have really mixed feelings. (laughs) Well, yeah, just not necessarily in that order. (laughs) I have deeply mixed feelings about what Tarantino is talking about. On the one hand, I love movies. The things I think about from the last five years are way more movies than television, with the exception of Atlanta. Atlanta is something that still comes up all the time. But like Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Get Out, like these are movies that continue to stick with me and circulate through my psyche and my conversations in ways that like almost nothing from television does. However, I think there is a little bit of privilege from the space where Tarantino says that because like, first off, he launched his career in the late eighties, early nineties, which is a completely different market than today. And the odds of getting your, even the most amazing spec script, the odds of it getting made and getting made at a budget level where you're able to make some real money from it so that you can live on it. So you can live to write again are, are infinitesimal. Everyone I know who is writing right now, even I have friends who've like had stuff on the blacklist are all trying to get staffed. And the reason why is it's a place where you can actually make a decent living as a writer. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in saying like, oh, I would like to be able to like pay rent. And if I have student loans, pay student loans and eat and also be a writer. And if TV and and episodic material is where that is, I think that that's also a fair ambition for a writer. I get what he's saying, right? Like think about Uncut Gems. That was a spec script. They wrote it before they had any hope of making a $60 million movie. I mean, back when they were making $10,000 movies, but they had big ambition and it's a fresh new thing that feels original. And it took them what, like 10, 12 years to get it made. And I think that Tarantino is saying like, guys, let's have those ambitions. Let's try and, and like Uncut Gems does way more to like expand the storytelling palette than, you know, another cop show. But I also <laughs> understand that, like, you know, getting staffed on a on a Cleveland fire department TV show could mean actually eating regularly. I had a friend who put it really well where she was like, I just want to be able to pick the yogurt at the grocery store and not worry about which one costs more. And I was like, yep. This is a this is. Yeah, I'm with you 100 um, percent. And I you know, it was my thought, too. It was like, wow, that's very easy for him to say. I think that clouded in his accolades and his talent and his long successful career, his uniqueness, you know, a lot of compliments his way is that he's also extremely lucky. Like a a lot of times anyone who's successful is lucky, but even the most talented people need luck to get their opportunities and his timing, you know, you could say he created his timing or his niche, but he did, nothing works like that. You know, Soderbergh had something to do with the market opening up for the Tarantino era. You know, there there are factors beyond anyone's understanding or control in the way the atoms bounce around the universe that like his opportunities arose and he made the best of them and and he he stuck. But it's very hard to maybe it's impossible almost to be a Tarantino now. Um that model is it's it's a very st- challenging so like i'm gonna write a spec that's weird and plays with genre and storytelling time and even if i'd had a feature under my belt as a writer it's unlikely that i would get an opportunity to make and direct you know and i think that you're right it's sort of like well people got to eat they got to have health care they have to but there's another factor which is like writing screenwriting or Television writing is a really tough business to go into if you're hoping to make money. It's probably not a good one, which is a shame. We should find ways to do something about that to expand the opportunity, because in many ways, the opportunity exists for those who have the means to fail 
which is part of like the limiting factor on how many voices we hear. We don't just need diversity in terms of ethnic background or gender. We need diversity in terms of economic background. We don't hear, you know, we the opportunities to go to film school, for example, are limited because of the budgets of people have or to take free internships or to get PA jobs where you don't get really well taken care of. You're abused for 14 hours a day and you get paid very little and people fight for those jobs. Anyway, the economics of the industry are fucked up, to put it mildly. And I think that he's, what he's talking about is like this kind of from on high where he is. I get it. I'd love for there to be more Uncut Gems and more Tarantinos for me to go see because those are the movies that I like. But I also don't think it's reasonable to ask. What I think I'd like, maybe let me, (laughs) rant is getting long here. What I think I'd like and maybe all of us would like is for more space to be opened up for that by the powers that be. So maybe what Mr. Tarantino could do is try to executive produce some of those kinds of specs or seek them out or shepherd those maybe slightly junior filmmakers along. And that would be cool. Um, But I don't think it's going to come from a person on script zero, so to speak, or movie 0.5. It's not realistic unless someone like Quentin Tarantino is like, I am going to help you just like the way in another era, Francis Ford Coppola would have said to George Lucas, who had a hell of a time getting anybody to put any money behind anything he did. Certainly he wasn't going to win any pitch, anybody anything in the room to say like, I think you got it, kid. I'm going to help you because I have a leg up already. So I, and I know people like Tarantino do that stuff. I know Scorsese, that Scorsese was a producer on uncut gems, you know, that, but, I think that's the way to his end game. Those of you who are out there writing, I had a my kind of come to Jesus moment about writing was like me and my writing partner were doing okay in terms of generating interest. But when you realize what you're going to make on the spec you sell with a partner, your first one, and how much time you put into it, you realize it's not that economically feasible. Writers don't make a lot and it's hard for them to sell their work. And so, yeah, writing on a TV show makes a lot more sense because that's a paycheck consistently writing one script and selling it. Who's to say you're ever going to sell another, not to sound depressing. But anyway, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things of like, I, I love the instinct, but it also doesn't respond to the market. I mean, you know, Tarantino was a little bit saying like, well, we've got all these streamers now and the streamers are interested in making movies. So there's more people financing. And it's like, well, yeah, except the streamers are almost exclusively financing movies from incredibly established filmmakers. Like, hooray, Apple financing a new Scorsese movie. That is great. I'm excited. I would yeah. like to watch that. But it's exactly like, true. They're not. Like, how, with the- <laughs> like, if they're having trouble getting to enough people to watch Mank, which, you know, I'm sure yeah, the numbers... is David Fincher. If they're like, we really hope we get a good streaming launch on Wonder Woman 1984, I'm sorry, they're not going <laughs> to put that much... They want more Wonder Womans, like literally at the same time. Like they don't want one Wonder Woman and then like five indies from people you didn't know about. You know why? Because no one's going to click on those. That's the problem. Well, and what's frustrating is that HBO used to be really good at discovering new voices because when it was a cable channel, primarily people would watch one thing they liked, you know, you could stack it up. You could say, all right, well, we're going to have this show that I know everybody likes at eight o'clock. And then I'm going to put somebody downwind of that show at nine o'clock and people are going to stick around to see what we did. So like, you know, Lena Dunham is for some reason controversial, although I don't know why I only watched the first two seasons of girls and it was good. I don't know what happened. Maybe it went really downhill, but 
for some reason, when I bring up Lena Dunham, people groan. I don't know why. The first two seasons of Girls Rock and Tiny Furniture is good. Tiny Furniture is good. But, um, you know, little indie Tiny Furniture got her an HBO show, which was solid and culturally relevant. And I guarantee you, I don't actually know what it was programmed after, but I guarantee you it was a, its first season was programmed after something else. And you had audience who are sitting around waiting for it. If that was replicated today, if somebody with just an indie feature that was solid got picked up by HBO Max, are people going to click on the icon for girls without a big marketing push to make them do it? Like, no. And so that strategy, it's such a good point. I think we all forget, you know, that strategy, like remember like 90s TV lineups. I think the 90s was close to the end of when that was working, but like they would always sandwich something between like Seinfeld and friends or, or things like that, or Seinfeld and ER. Cause NBC. But for HBO Sunday nights, I think that worked right. until like 2010, 2011, 2012. I think right. the you HBO could, Sunday night lineup was a thing where they were willing to experiment with smaller people, but it still only makes sense for serialized content where your marketing spend can pay dividends over time. Marketing a feature that is a one-off, you know, the studios are going to be willing to risk that for five or six movies a year tops. And one will be a Tarantino movie if he's made a movie that year. And that's about it. Like there's very, it's so hard to make your money back on a one shot. His last movie had two of the biggest movie stars of the generation atop it. So, and not like star studded beyond that, but so you know, and a lot, it still might be a tough sell because, because it's like, well, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is about. It's not IP. It's not, you know, the, this marketplace is just vicious in compared to what it was for the kind of content some of us grew up loving. Certainly Tarantino grew up loving. So I get what he wants. I want it too, but I don't get how it happens unless you do something like a double feature. You find a way to tack things together or you find or, uh, you know, stars can do it by choosing projects. Writing a great spec is not it alone. That's the, Here's that's the, thing. the reality. You should still write a great spec. The advice is still good because you should still write a great spec because a great spec can get you staffed on a TV show, which, you know, um, we had a showrunner come into my class recently to talk and she was like, you know, I was I was hiring for uh, this show she's doing for Apple. And so I read 150 things. And I, I think she said something like a third of them were specs and two thirds were spec episodes. So, you know, read spec features in there in that pile. I don't remember the exact breakdown. I could be misquoting her or confusing guests. But like, you know, you can write a good spec feature and have that get you representation that gets you on a show. It is more likely that that spec might get you representation. And then you end up writing, working with your agent, a couple spec episodes. And then that ends up getting you on a show that is probably more likely. One thing he does seem to be saying, which I respect is sometimes just do the shit because you want to do it and strategy be damned. And, and I do like that. I like the, like, just, if just write the goddamn movie. Yeah. Write yeah. the movie you goddamn want to see. And maybe there'll be a way for it to sort of magically figure itself out. This isn't officially tech news. This wasn't written about from like a a pure tech angle, but we wanted to talk about it because it was sort of an interesting article. The NFL 
is shooting with basically like an indie film rig for a lot of their broadcasts these days. So a little bit of context. First off, the NFL has always been the like highest of fancy for television production, which means really high-end television cameras. It means for a long time, NFL films shot on film because it was archival. So it would not be uncommon to see like 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter cameras at games shooting intense moments so that they would have archives of stuff. Because, you know, especially in the beginning of digital film lasts so much longer. We have better digital archiving techniques now. It would not be uncommon to see like a Steadicam operator out on the field with a big broadcast camera and flying around with a Steadicam and and on a Segway and, you know, $150,000 worth of gear. Nobody would think about it. NFL makes plenty of money. They can afford the budgets. Away we go. What's interesting is NFL is now starting to do a lot of shooting with the Sony a7R4, which is a $3,000 camera, which, I mean, if I had to guess, it's probably the camera that most (laughs) of all the cameras you can buy, I would guess that it's the most common camera among our readers and listeners. Like I would guess like 8% of our listeners own it and no other camera comes close. Or maybe the a7S4, which just came out. That's kind of amazing. And then they're intercutting it seamlessly with their $100,000 broadcast cameras. They have it set up on like a gimbal. It looks like a DJI Ronin, but I actually didn't see close enough shots to know. But basically, they're out there with a Sony A7 A7R4 and a DJI gimbal that probably costs 1000 bucks, And then like a, a zero de- delay wireless, probably a Teradek transmitting it wirelessly to the switching van and then they're color correcting it to match. And, you know, there's a bunch of samples in the article and it matches perfectly. And it's these amazing shots where like, you know, right after the touchdown, the dude is running out to the field with the, uh, with the gimbal, getting close to the players, getting in the mix, getting cool foreground, running around. And it's shots that didn't show up in sports games the way these do five years ago, handheld shots, which is how they used to do it. Always felt shaky and chaotic. Steady cam shots were great, but you know that's way more expensive, way harder to operate. It was a, it was less common. Now it's like a little ten thousand dollar rig that they can just buy and have on standby and run out whenever they want. It's kind of crazy. Knowing that you're going out and shooting on the same thing that the stuff you're watching is shooting on, at least for someone my age or close to my age, is novel, right? Because it just wouldn't have ever happened. You wouldn't have access to those tools. You wouldn't see those images on TV or anywhere else. And I think that that's kind of an exciting shift and it gives you an idea of how, I mean, it makes sense. Like we've talked a lot about when directors decide to shoot stuff on an iPhone or something. And Soderbergh talks about all he can do. He's somebody who's always pushing that, but smaller, lighter camera that can go different places and get in a move in an easier fashion is exciting for action. Like there's, there's ways in which it makes sense if you can, if you can integrate it. So I think it's, it's a pretty exciting thing. And I'd be curious to see how far it goes. You know, one funny thing is how quickly I think historically sports footage gets dated um, and how uncinematic it always is in the way it's presented. And have you ever noticed when you watch sports movies, it always feels like such a big disconnect between the experience of watching live sports because the cameras are completely different. Like you never see sports, sporting events are not lit. They are not on, you know, the frame rate was always different. The quality of when you'd finally see it on your little TV at home was always different. But now that's starting to vanish because we can do it exactly the same way. And I'd kind of like to see somebody do like narrative sports and attack it by shooting it with the same tools, the same way that you would see it on TV. 
I mean, from a storytelling standpoint, I mean, it's funny because the headline we ran with was on any given Sunday, but like any given Sunday, the Oliver Stone movie is like beautifully shot. I think it's Salto Tino. And it's like aggressively, the cinematography is, is like epic and amazing and utterly unlike how you would normally shoot a game live. And so which I sort of which like, yeah. Right. If you go that way, that's a whole, that's an artistic thing, right? That becomes its own elevated thing that I, yeah. that I think is great. But if you're kind of splitting them, if you're like somewhere, land somewhere in the middle, it's like, it's, it's confusing visually, I think. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. I also think that like, you know, we, we forget, I think, but like TV and live sports is one of the last bastions where these indie tools really go. You will see like major motion pictures shooting on a Sony Alpha camera way before you will see it at a live sp- sporting event, just because of the way in which live sporting event, the demands that are placed on the cameras, the expectations for what they offer, and right. the like, and it's a live event, so there is really no room for failure, right? Like on you know every time you read about a motion picture that's shooting on an A7S3, they always have fifteen of them on set. One of them overheats, they pick up another. Like it's not a it's just not the same thing, but like a live sporting event, you need a camera that is like never going to overheat right in the middle of the amazing sports ball moment. You need to be able to feel like you have tools that really deliver. And the fact that they're just out there running around with like DJI Ronin, Sony alpha and like killing it in live sports is a big deal. Like it is really a convergence of our independent tools and the high-end Pro Tools in a way that we hadn't seen before. So I think that is like an exciting thing. I wasn't aware that that was happening, so I was psyched to see it. Pivoting from that into tech news, we've had some really smooth transitions this episode, if I say so myself. Tech news is also from Sony, and it is from Sony's new AirPeak platform. So a a couple months ago, we talked about this. Sony has started leaking that they're going to be moving into drones with the brand name AirPeak, and they are finally out with their drones, the AirPeak drones. Pricing isn't announced. Details aren't announced, but images were announced at CES, which is weird because CES is the consumer electronics show, and this doesn't feel quite consumery to me. And the reason why it doesn't feel consumery to me, but whatever, they can release it whenever they want. I would have waited to NAB, but maybe they want to start selling it at NAB in April, is uh, the AirPeak quadcopter drone, so four propellers. So here's what's cool about the AirPeak. The AirPeak is designed to work with Sony Alpha cameras. So this isn't Sony building a drone that also has like a built-in camera and they had to design the camera from scratch and they had to design new lenses and sensors and, and everything. It is literally, hey, do you already own a Sony Alpha camera? with its full frame image sensor and you already own the lenses and it already can control focus iris and zoom from the camera body. Do you just want to make that fly by the air peak? And I actually think this is a really smart play for a whole bunch of reasons. One, I mean, Sony every, already makes everybody's sensor. I don't actually think they make DJI's. I think DJI sources from somewhere else, but they make all, you know, everybody else's sensor. They know sensors. The, the Sony alphas are crazy good cameras that are very common. And so Now you're going to be able to have your drone be the same camera that you might shoot as your A camera for production, and that's going to make them intercut better. One of the drawbacks we always have with drone shooting is when the camera's in the air, it's a different camera with a different sensor and different color reproduction, so making it match your A camera is harder. Now it could be the exact same camera or at least the exact same model. That's super cool. 
Beyond that, with the new generation Sony Alpha cameras, they uh, have an internal, um, and we should have seen this coming actually, because about, a, I don't know, six months or a year ago, it came out with, it's got an internal accelerometer, which allows you to do this cool post stabilization because it's recording its pan, tilt, and rotate data along with the footage in the shot. So you can post-stabilize the footage with this special Sony thing. Frankly, I don't know why every camera doesn't have this. Your iPhone has this. Every camera should have an internal measurement for this. But the Sonys do. And I suspect that the combination of that working with other technology in the AirPeak drone is going to make it easier to stabilize the shots. I think that Sony added that to the Alpha cameras with this coming. And there's going to be a way to link this to the camera to help it make for more stabilized shots in the air because it has that data from the camera level. I don't know. I think it's super cool. I think it's a bold move from Sony. Now, the warning is everybody but DJI seems to have trouble with drones. I mean, the big example here is GoPro who came out with a drone that was going to compete with DJI and then it fell out of the sky repeatedly. Now, Sony is a much bigger company than GoPro. They have a much bigger R&D department than GoPro. They also have a, a, a long history. Everyone thinks of Sony losing the beta cam versus VHS battle in the 80s. But what you forget <laughs> is that they learned a lot of lessons from that. And they've lost very few battles since. They lost Memory Stick, but Memory Stick was dumb. But like they won Blu-ray. When Blu-ray and HD cam and HD um, DVD were fighting it out, Blu-ray won because Sony knows how to win. And Sony knows how to bring... Uh, a large infrastructure to a fight. The fact that Sony Alpha has its market dominance in comparison to Canon and Nikon is a huge win for Sony. So I actually think that we might see a real competitor of Sony. I don't think these are going to fall out of the sky at anywhere near the rate of the GoPros. I think Sony's way too careful to roll out something like that GoPro drone. And I think it's a really interesting sort of combo. So I, I'm psyched to see how they perform. I just look at it and see the camera on that drone and it feels kind of scary because even though that drone looks really cool and um, <laughs> it's just like, wow, you're going to put that mirrorless camera up there. Like, <laughs> like what if the thing just doesn't work? Like it, I'm not used to thinking of drones that way at, at a certain level, you know, I know that there's a level where it's like you put all kinds of things on rigs or all kinds of expensive yeah, You fly a red, you fly an Alexa, you fly prime. Yeah. There's something though that it's like in those instances maybe it's a rental you own your your mirrorless and you're putting it up in the sky on a on a drone it feels like a, a little scary but you know I mean we hope it's safe right it's still a drone flying through the air so we still have to worry about like are they going to do this correctly we had all of those drones you know we had the DJI's falling from the sky so like we are all yeah. hoping that this is going to be safe and done correctly. We have our fingers crossed that it's going to be safe and done correctly. We're optimistic because they're Sony that they're going to do this right, but we don't know. Yes. True. Our final topic this week, we have a crowdfunding question. So Smith, the mononym Smith has said, I've made a few films over the years, but real life keeps, keeps me from making as many as I'd like. And now he's got a feature script or they, I don't know. I'm not going to assume gender. They have a feature script and it's a genre film and they want to crowdfund. And they're wondering for any suggestions or advice to raise $50,000 on crowdfunding 
in order to turn this feature genre project into reality. So the feature film I directed was partially crowdfunded. I've worked on, you know, my when I owned a production company, we crowdfunded a couple of short projects and and a feature project, and we even did a little consulting with other people doing crowdfunding. So I have some background. The first biggest piece of advice I'm going to say is that many people, the first time they crowdfund, imagine that out there, there are people that they've never met who contribute to crowdfunding projects. That is not how it works. A crowdfund means the people you know will pay for it. So like for whatever reason, people will like launch a crowdfunding thing and then they'll go live and then they won't promote it really heavily and they won't email all their friends and then they'll be like, oh, but nobody contributed. And I'm like, well, it's not like there are people, nobody's going to Kickstarter or Indiegogo and randomly browsing projects to look to contribute to that I know of. Maybe there's like one person who, you know, a Nigerian prince with millions of dollars to give away and no one responds to his emails. (laughs) So he's just like desperately trying to find places to give his money. But for the rest of us, a crowdfund means hitting up your friends and family to give you money. The second thing I would, uh, so you're going to have to be promoting it heavily. You're going to have to send out direct emails. You're going to go to every Facebook connection you have. You're going to send out every Twitter post you have. You're going to engage with the people who are interested in your work and who support you. The second thing I have is instead of looking at crowdfunding, you should look at crowd equity. We've got a couple articles up on this at No Film School. I know Micah Van Hove has done some of it. And that is an opportunity where you are now allowed, this used to be illegal, but now you can do it, to do microfinancing where people are contributing, but they take some ownership. Now, does ownership matter a ton in a $50,000 movie? No, most $50,000 movies never make their money back. However, some do. It might take eight years, but some do. And, you know, it's a genre project, so that helps because there are genre fanatics out there. You know what I mean? There are people who just watch a horror movie every night. They exist. They're, they're, they're in the world, and they are constantly looking for new ones, constantly skimming in Amazon Prime. Um, so you could put your project up on Amazon, and it could find an audience of people who like your genre. So you've got that going for you. You can also try and expand your audience by connecting with people who have some relation to your genre. So finding horror movie fan sites, finding horror movie mailing lists, finding other things like that, and and pitching your project to them. And that might help you crowdsource among people who are already interested in your subject. Are there other big crowdfunding advices that I missed? I think you got most of it, or most of what I would say. I've also done it um, with some success, but a lot of what you're doing when you do crowdfunding is, yeah, you're hitting up the people you know for money. If you're doing Kickstarter or Indiegogo and you're offering them things and you're going to have to deliver on those things. And, you know, I've seen all manner of, you know, don't offer things like I'll have coffee and give you notes on your script. I mean, or <laughs> be realistic about what's valuable and and <laughs> might be valuable to somebody else. I mean, you could offer that if you are a person that someone might actually want spend money to get that from, but maybe there are things unrelated to the film itself you can offer that might be valuable. But I also want to like piggyback on the value of of WeFunder. We did a couple stories on WeFunder at nofilmschool.com. One is called Is Equity Crowdfunding the New Best Way to Finance Your Film by Oakley, who's been on the podcast a bunch of times with us as a guest. Um, it's a great piece that really goes into how WeFunder works and what this film equity finance thing really is. Also did a piece on Micah Van Hove, who has been a no film schooler for a long time and worked on a feature in the jungle or project in the jungle with the one and only 
Um, oh, shoot. Werner Herzog? Werner Herzog, yeah, the one and only guy who's named blank Werner Herzog called the, Is This the Future of Indie Film Finance? And it's cool. They're, you know, they, Snake Oil song, Micah's Project, reached its goal. We'll be, of course, updating on how that goes since he's a no film schooler. There's a lot of ways to do this and there's a lot of interesting reasons. And just like you're saying, I think, don't expect random people to come to your Kickstarter and spend a lot of money. I do think if you're offering equity and you make it seem interesting and you are as strategic as Charles, as you outlined, hitting up communities that are interested, there are a lot of people in this world who like movies, right? Who aren't making them and who maybe even don't want to make them like creatively, but would probably enjoy being a donor and having like some say. I mean, the internet is great in some ways awful in others, but one of the great ways is there's so many niche communities you didn't know about. You want to make a Western? You know, there are niche Western communities. <laughs> like fans of like, you want to make a horror movie? There's many. They're not just niche. You want to make a, I don't know what? You can find the subreddit. You can find the message boards. You can find your people, make an Instagram page, whatever you have to do, and then ask them if they want to go in on it with you. And you know, in my conversation with Micah and with other people who he worked with on the WeFunder, there are ways you bring them into you bring them to the table in some cases, and maybe you're still ultimately the final say. But creatively, do they want to have like input? Do they want to see cuts? Like you don't want to get into a messy situation. But if they're if they're financiers of your project, maybe that's all they want is to be a little bit a part of the process. And so you're you're offering so much more than if you're just doing a Kickstarter and you're saying, give me money, please. Um, so I think that's the route to explore personally. All right. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. I'm Charles Hain. You can find me on the, the Twitter and the Instagram at Charles Hain. And I'm George Edelman. You can check out everything we talked about at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter at No Film School. Like our Facebook page, No Film School is the name. Like, rate, subscribe to the podcast. Send us any questions you have. Loved this question today from Smith. Send us anything you can, you wonder about or would like to hear us talk about. Ask at nofilmschool.com. You can also try editor at nofilmschool.com. We'll get all of those. And thank you so much for listening.